0: Hi, you're listening to New Books in History. I'm your host, Dexter Fergie. Today I'll be speaking with Asa McKircher about his exciting new book called Canada and the World Since 1867. McKircher is an assistant professor at the Royal Military College of Canada. If you can't tell by the way I pronounce the word about, I should probably let you know that I'm from Canada. And I have to make a confession. Growing up in Vancouver, I was fed the line that Canadian history was dull that it lacked drama, you know, there was no revolutionary war against England. And so my historical attention has always been drawn to the United States. It wasn't until I was deep into college that I began to think otherwise. And, as a result, I know far too little about my country's history. McRitcher's book is a very good rebuttal to the Canadian history is boring thesis. Surveying the history of Canada's relations with the rest of the world The book tracks how Canada slowly de-dominionized from Britain, how it waged an ugly campaign against First Nations communities to assist settlers westward, and how it dealt with having a superpower for a neighbor. The book should not be read, however, just by Canadians or Canadian historians. In examining the history of a medium-sized state's foreign policy, McKircher's book helps us understand how the international system itself works. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm speaking with Aza McCurcher about his book, Canada and the World, Since 1867. Welcome to the show, Aza. Well, thanks, uh, Dexter.
1: Thanks for having me. This is a, uh, wonderful to be here.
0: Yeah, I, mean, I, you know, I, I recently wrote my first comprehensive exam, uh, which was on U.S. history. And so your book was really a sight for sore eyes. Uh, you know, <laughs> I was just uh, th- thrilled to, to be reading about a different country um and i must confess right now that i'm slightly embarrassed as a canadian at how much i learned from your book um it was, it was it, yeah it was really terrific
1: well i'm very pleased to have upped your your canadian content your cancon <laughs>
0: that's right program. yeah we'll be getting into cancon uh later in the podcast oh, oh yeah yeah um so uh first just to start us off most of the listeners to this podcast are not going to be canadian um uh, most are going to be America- american And so I really want to, you know, sort of deal with this before we um, take our listeners on a journey through Canadian history. Um, So I'd love to hear from you why um, international historians should pay attention to Canadian history. Sure. I think
1: think as we were discussing before we started recording, I uh, started off doing American history. I went to Cambridge to do a PhD in American history um, and returned to Canada uh, through a of postdoc opportunities, and ended up teaching Canadian history at mm-hmm. uh, in, in several universities here. And you know, the, I think what's interesting about Canadian history and coming out from an American perspective and a sort of an international history perspective is so many of the themes uh, we see play out in other areas of international history are, are themes that Canadian history can provide some additional sort of examples of or context of or or counters to or or. Uh, a different kind of take on some things. So we could talk about uh, the influences of the British world kind of history and, and uh, sort of the imperial relations, Commonwealth relations. Uh, settler colonialism is another big thing. I mean, Canada is obviously overlooked by many Americans, but we're we've been that uh, northern neighbor for quite a while. And there's a huge uh, interchange between Canadians and Americans and a whole series of, of things from trade and natural resources to ideas and politics and also all kinds of things. And so in the in the realm of kind of international history, I think there's a lot of things you could, you could point to Canada towards and make connections to other other areas of interest. Um, and certainly, I mean, part of this will sound very parochial, but there's a, a tendency in American history to look, obviously, at American examples as being the, the primary kind of focus of things, but to, to overlook Canada. And I, you know I'm Lonely Canadians sometimes are bleeding, but well, what about Canada? But so much of, say, the borderlands, just to take an example, so much of the borderland studies, which is... Maybe not as popular now as it used to be a few years ago. Um, but they're seeing lots of people doing borderland stuff. Often focuses on Mexico and, and the United States, but there's that whole northern borderland too, where there's a lot of interesting kinds of things going on. So I think that's that's part of the focus is Canada's often often overlooked when it really sh- I think shouldn't be, and that's like sort of the, been the focus of my very small scholarly uh, uh, output in, in terms of things is to publish in presses that aren't Canadian, so that maybe there's a chance some non Canadians will read. Some things about Canada. So this is, for instance, published with Bloomsbury, not a Canadian press at all. So that's just an example of that sort
0: of thing. Great. And just on a more personal note, what pulled you towards a career in history in the first place? Um, My father's actually a historian. Um, oh no! Uh, although it's
1: one of those things. I, when I was a boy, I don't know how old I was eight. Let's say he you know, sat me down and said, "Son, I'll I support you in whatever you want to do. If you want to become a lawyer or a plumber, or, but just don't become an historian." And so it was an act of <laughs> terrible rebellion. I decided to not take that advice. So,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, but also, I I was drawn to history. I think uh, as many people are, you know, wanting to understand the past and perhaps influence on the future and. I don't know, this I don't know that's quite true in him, but it's kind of idealistic things maybe you think in high school. Um, but an understanding the past, I think, is very, very, very important. And I um, worked for a number of years at the Library and Archives Canada, the National Archives in Ottawa. And uh, so I had a passion for history from the kind of a, the back end, from the archival kind of perspective, but also then from the sort of scholarly perspective as well. So.
0: Um, and just really quickly, what, uh, what sort of history did your dad do?
1: Oh, British uh, political and economic kind of history.
0: Okay. Um, okay, great. So now let's move into the book. So Canada was confederated in 1867. Um, but you make it clear that confederation was not independence. Um, what was it then? Um,
1: more or less a sort of halfway house, I guess, between independence and colonial dependency. Um Obviously, the term independence for Canadians, especially in 1867, had a very American flavor, uh, which was uh, not very politically popular in Canada. And so, um, of course, even in 1926, there's something called the Balfour Declaration. It's kind of a declaration of independence, but the Canadian government was very clear that the word autonomy should be used because independence, again, sounded very American. And so what happens in 1867 is Canada essentially gets more or less a lot of control over sort of internal issues in terms of international history it gets the ability to make trade agreements but it doesn't have any control over foreign policy legally and under the under the kind of way canada set up and there's still of course huge ties those ties of kiss and kin between many canadians who view themselves as british uh and perhaps are british indeed in terms of immigration and kinds of things they may be first generation or something recent arrivals, certainly view Canada as part of the British Empire, even though it's become this, and the term they, they coin is dominion, which is a sort of self-governing dominion, which is able to govern its own affairs, but it's still in many ways tied to to Britain through a whole series of legal mechanisms from a governor general, who's a British, at this time a British lord appointed um, from London, who can still, uh, in the context of 1867, can still have control over some aspects of Canadian Domestic affairs, even um, to uh, to the lack of, say, even a Supreme Court, uh, the final court of appeal um, until the nineteen forties. In fact, is is, uh, is a, a committee in in the, of the House of Lords in London, um, and of course, this issue of, of uh, foreign policy, which will really, of course, be important for Canada, because in August nineteen fourteen, we we enter the war, not of our own choice and effect, but because. Like the, the, the King of Canada is the King of England and he's declared Britain and he's declared war against Germany. And so by, by uh, Fiat, we're, we're at war. So that'll obviously be very, very important uh, 50 years after, after Confederation.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I was actually um, uh, really fascinated by just how British Canada was uh, until really late. Uh, I mean, this is a little bit earlier, but in 1891, um John A McDonald's on the campaign trail and he says um, a British subject I was born a British subject I will die um, and this is apparently a really um you know popular sentiment um and it's and it's so different from you know obviously um the the American case um but this this sort of um yeah British sensibility or British um um sense of identity um was really uh, um it really persisted until quite late
1: yeah, I mean, even the, the Diefenbaker government in the 50s and 60s made a big appeal to sort of British sensibilities of, of Canadians, almost 100 years after Confederation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's a remarkable kind of thing. Um, and in terms of, you know, the sort of Canada's first few decades of creation, I mean, this is a period where the majority of immigrants who do come, and there's, you know, there's several waves of immigration that, that have, are majority people from the British Isles. Um and this is also Peter's like to remind my students that, that uh, Canada, the British Empire is in some ways at the height of its power um, and you know this is the era of rigid Kipling and things. and so this is why wouldn't you want to be British if you were Canadian? Why wouldn't you want to have this larger sense of identity and be on the the winning side in effect you know the, the, where the sun never sets and so you know that that kind of appeal appeals to Canadians, I think, at this time. For, for some Canadians, I should say, there's certainly not many French Canadians and certainly not many uh, so-called uh, you know, ethnic Canadians, I guess, would be the term people would use even at the time. Um, because part of that wave of immigration is is people from continental Europe who certainly aren't pro-British necessarily. Although, again, there's some cases where they're too fit in the Canadian society. They become sort of flag-waving imperialists, and, uh, and it's an interesting thing in itself.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and so you've you've already mentioned that Britain um retained control of Canada's foreign policy, um you know um at confederation and um for several decades after. Um, but you also show that Canada's first major independent foray into international diplomacy was um its treaty negotiations with First Nations communities. Um, can you share with listeners a bit about this and why it's important to read? Canadian Indigenous relations as international relations.
1: Sure. Well, I think by definition they're international relations. I mean, a treaty is. Mm-hmm. is you know, I don't want to get the old. By Webster's dictionary says, but um, <laughs> but that's the case, and the treaty is, is uh, you know negotiated and formed between two two independent nations. And so, um, you know, part of I guess what the book does is to bring in the history of uh, crown Crowneders of so Canadian Indigenous relations. Um, into the history of Canadian foreign policy, which I think is perhaps a controversial thing, and certainly some of the reviewers of my book were not too happy about that, um, also because it's not a happy story. Uh, um, but it's important, I think, to address the fact that you know, Canada's some of Canada's first acts of, of, um, of diplomatic negotiation weren't in the context of the 1920s or 1930s, when we, you know, the typical kind of thing, but were, in fact, uh, negotiations um, in this very dark story of Canadian expansion across the plains. And uh, there's certainly been a lot of attention, as, as you're no doubt aware, over the past decade, half decade in Canada, growing attention to the, the situation involving Indigenous people in in Canada, um, which comes and goes in waves. But this is certainly the, the the current kind of attention on these issues is, is, I don't want to say impressive, but much bigger than perhaps since the, since maybe the late 1960s. Um, and part of that is it actually involved the work of historians to kind of recreate a lot of the story of Canadian dealings in the, in the 1870s, 1880s in terms of Indigenous people and the role really of uh, our first Prime Minister, John MacDonald, who in addition to being our first Prime Minister was also uh, for many, many years held two dual portfolios and was also Minister of Indian Affairs and was responsible then um, in effect for a policy uh, which you could probably fairly you know, term ethnic cleansing, if not something worse, which was the use of food rations essentially to starve Indigenous people out of the way uh, of settlement um, in violation of some of the agreements made in these treaties. And so, if we think of Canada's relationship with Indigenous people as a state to state relationship, we get a much darker tale, I think, about Canadian diplomacy than the typical glad handing middle power sort of relationship that we might think of
0: mm-hmm.
1: and so part of I think what I do in the or try to do in the book and again it's it's a you know pretty broad ranging book so to go into a lot of detail it was not possible thanks to that old friend of ours the the word count um
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um but
1: was to to kind of map out maybe how you know other historians might might look at these things in in, in depth because certainly our uh, the, the this relationship between Canada and indigenous people is something not only in, in the 1870s and 80s but I try to show it you know in different areas throughout the throughout the 150 years that the, that the book covers and how these relationships sort of will affect Canada's relationship at home with indigenous peoples and how these you know the world that has an impact on sort of settler colonialism um, is an issue and so currently I mean there's a in in a rural in the interior of British Columbia there's a standoff uh, between indigenous people and the RCMP um, and I've just seen some uh, reports at the same time as Canada is, we're campaigning right now for a seat on the UN Security Council, and the Norwegian delegation who we're campaigning against has indicated to you know, to the press to, that Norway doesn't have a problem with its indigenous people like Canada, and so perhaps deserves the seat on on um, Security Council more than Canada. So <laughs> you know, these links between things that happen at home in Canada and the world is is it's always been present, and I think it, you know, the current example is continue to bear those sorts of things out
0: yeah i think your book does a really good job in just showing these various connections between what's happening at home and what's happening abroad um and i think like the the example that you just uh mentioned is really interesting because like not only is um canadian indigenous relations um you know a a form of international relations but then like those relations also affect um, you know, Canadian international relations, Canadian diplomacy, elsewhere. Um, and so, yeah, these connections are all moving in different directions. And so, can I just, one thing I've really, you know, come
1: to, and uh, is there's this, the big debates that we've had in Canada and, and in the wider field for a while, field of history for a while, this kind of debate between political history and sort of social cultural history and the history of, you know, minority groups or something. And there's kind of created as this dichotomy between them, but I think you know one thing um, that our, our, you know perhaps our experience with with Schaefer, the Society of Historians of American Foreign Relations, has shown is that you know in the kind of America in the world field, it's it's the, that dichotomy can be broken down, and so you can have a melding of kind of you know traditional kind of approaches to history, the, the Rankian kind of stuff, with with new kind of approaches, and so I, that's happened elsewhere in Canadian history, in terms of military history, for instance. is always used to be the old, you know, very old-fashioned kind of thing, and then the you know the big growth over the past fifteen or twenty years. in the war in society has really transformed, I think, the teaching and, and study of military history in Canada. So, what I've said, you know, in, in this book, I tried to do in this book is to say, you know, this is a possibility. International historians in Canada, of which I count myself as one, we you know we complain about how we are. No one likes us. You know, in the history departments in most Canadian universities, but but if we you know maybe try a bit more to do mm-hmm. a more broad-reaching history or put more people in our tent by mm-hmm. incorporating people who might you know adopt transnational approaches, we're actually maybe not doing so bad uh, if we if we think we'll broaden our, our our tent a little bit. And so I've tried to sort of point the way toward doing that, perhaps.
0: Yeah. Um... This this might be a uh, this might, this question might elicit an obvious answer, but I'm very curious. Um, why didn't Canada acquire an overseas empire? Um, well, I suppose we
1: we took part in some overseas adventures by the British, uh, South Africa, mm-hmm. you know, the Boer War, probably most uh, famously, and certainly Canadians found themselves fighting on behalf of the British Empire. So there were a number of graduates of the institution I teach for now, the Royal Military College. In Kingston, who Canada had really no military to speak of, even though they created this military college to train officers, and so most of those officers, many of those officers, commissioned into the British Army and went. Many of them went on to big careers uh, serving the British Empire. And so, even though they weren't, Cana- I mean, they weren't Canadian soldiers, they were Canadians who, because of Canada's links through the British world, were able to serve across Africa and Asia and other kinds of things. Um, but in terms of building its own overseas empire, I suppose Canada had enough enough uh you know stuff to do at home, you know and certainly you know colonial expansion across the, across the plains took a lot of effort, but there were some incidents where Canadians sort of considered doing these kinds of things, and so um during the first world war, there was some effort fairly serious on the part of the Canadian Prime Minister Robert Borden to work out a deal with the British to acquire the Caribbean uh the uh, sorry the British West Indies. Um, but as his advisors noted, this would probably mean that uh, black people in the West Indies would want to move to Canada and that you know, would offend white Canadians who didn't want black neighbors. And so because of that issue, the government sort of backed away from the from that. Um, so there were some instances where the Canadian government sort of considered some of these kinds of things. But I think, I don't know, Canadians, this is a huge over a but we don't like to spend money on things. You know, our our <laughs> We only like spend money for a very brief period. We spent money on foreign aid, but we've been a laggard in that for many, many years. We've, we tend to underfund our diplomatic corps and a whole series of other things. So, yeah, so that's a pretty typical Canadian thing, perhaps, is that the I mean,
0: cost isn't. So it, it was uh, frugality that kept us from uh, expanding overseas? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, just moving forward a little bit, um, the. First World War is really interesting in um, Canadian history um, because the war began with um, uh, uh, you know well Canada is a, a dominion um, uh, of of Britain and so the war began with um, uh, a lot of Canadians really boosting for British patriotism um, uh, you know not all Canadians but um, a lot but then the, the, with the war wrapping up Canada then sought more autonomy. Um, can you explain how this happened? Um, sure. I mean, when when the
1: war begins, Canada again is legally at war because of the British Empire is at war. Uh, now, Canada had a say over what it would do, right? It, it could have just stayed at, you know, given maybe a few token troops, or 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 just focused on selling wheat and munitions and other kinds of things, and it, it did the latter. But it it you know raised huge numbers of troops. One in uh one in twelve Canadians, I think that the statistic is uh, uh, served in uniform during uh, the war, which uh, you know maybe in comparison to Britain or france wasn't, wasn't a lot, but you know, it's a significant Canada so um and that's because many Canadians again considered themselves British and indeed the first contingent of Canadian soldiers who go over in late nineteen fourteen at like thirty one thousand of them in that first bunch, and I think seventy two percent uh were recently arrived immigrants from Britain. So for them, it was no, no kind of thing, question that they would go and fight for Britain. But still, that, that didn't stop another 600,000 or so Canadians from volunteering uh, to fight in this war. But I think one of the results of the war is, is to show just how empty the kind of jingoism was. And we, that's a typical kind of view, I think, you know, that we have, many people have it. War, and I think that's that's it's 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 true today as it was that kind of understanding of the war in the 1920s and, and different kinds of things. And I think as a result, that, many people think, well, what is what is the point of this link to the British Empire? Is it a a, a boon or or not? And if Britain is going to involve us in these kinds of things, are they trustworthy? And I think you know in in Canada. There's a lot of flag waving about a battle that most people outside of the country have never heard of called the Battle of Vimy Ridge, which takes place in 1917. And I, my students are always shocked when, the, when I tell them that most people outside of Canada have never heard of this battle, let alone think it's this kind of great moment. Um, if you looked it up in most histories of the World War, one, maybe there'll be an entry in the index and there may maybe a mention on a paragraph or something. But in Canada, it's this, seen as this, at least for some Canadians, seen as this huge moment of sort of Canada coming in as a nation, and, and there's a lot of myth making about it, and a lot of kind of propaganda about it. But, but the, I think, as I point out in the book, I think there's the a, a myth of Vimy mean, is true in some senses, in that it it, it really is a encapsulation of the view that I think many Canadians had, certainly in, even in government, um, that you know, the cost of the British Empire could be a or membership in the british empire could be a very dangerous thing and that as a result of the war maybe canada needs some more say over its its own affairs, affairs and international affairs and so there's a push then by by the conservative pro-british government uh during the war and after for canada to have more autonomous role and the kind of impetus to the the Pressure behind that kind of dissipates a little bit, but it's it's only a few years later, 1926, that a that a liberal prime minister, named William Lyon Mackenzie King, really pushes for this declaration of autonomy. Um, and then again, under a conservative government, five years later, there's the passage uh, in Britain of something called the Statute of Westminster. But it's a conservative government in Canada in, in the, at the time, a pro-British guy, R.B. Bennett, and and so even conservatives and liberals, uh, you know, even despite their maybe pro-British feelings push for Canada to be able to have a say in the world. And I think there's, it's, it's this, this idea that membership in the British Empire is good in theory, but in practice, maybe we can't trust the Brits to do well in things.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so the next sort of bit of your book deals with the interwar era. Um, and um, I, I really enjoyed um, this chapter. It detailed how Canadians were really on a widespread basis, um, really beginning to think about the world and um, their relationship to the world. Um, And so you have the rise of the first foreign affairs think tanks, um, the League of Nations Society, Model League of Nations Assemblies. Uh, Can you talk about this moment of internationalism and um, what was driving it um, uh, and what were the long-term consequences for Canada of this moment? Sure.
1: I think there's you know, a variety of threads in the interwar period. There's this kind of growing autonomy a push of push from time from Britain. At the same time, there's plenty of pro-British boosters who still want to fight alongside, you know, the British lion when 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 she roars. And so there's some incidents in the 1920s, something called the Chanak Crisis, which again, assuming they're probably everyone, most people have forgotten, but it looked like Britain might go to war with Turkey, and there were people calling for Canada. To send troops, and and so there's some pro-British There's these people who want more autonomy, and then there are people who begin to think, um, you know, what is it about Canada and Canada's geography that really can distinguish us as a country? And they know that, in a very famous phrase by, is a, a, a Canadian senator named Raoul Dandarand, who's a Canada's representative at a League of Nations assembly. He, he declares that Canada is a fireproof house, uh, far from flammable materials, because we have a very at the time, you know, and still a very friendly neighbor to ourselves, uh, who, even though dwarfs us in, in, in economic terms, and military terms, and cultural terms, is is not marching on our borders. Uh we have three oceans around us otherwise, and so we don't have a lot to fear. And so there's many Canadians who argue in the nineteen twenties, let's isolate ourselves and again we have this you know, American thing too with isolationism, and obviously that's not 100% true because America's is itself in the world in a whole series of other ways, but there's this argument that you know, if we stay at home and tend our own garden, let, let, let the world sort itself out. We've paid enough in blood and treasure in the World War. Our country was ripped apart uh, between the English and French Canadians over a series of issues to do with conscription. Uh, and so let's let the world sort itself out and stay here and, and build ourselves up and, and, and profit uh, from our good relations with our neighbor to the south so that's one of these sorts of strands. And then there's, of course, the other strand of people who say, and there's often overlap between some of these groups even, who say, mm-hmm. well, this is a terrible war, and this new series of institutions have been built up to to fix it or to, to, to avoid such a situation in the future that the League of Nations most prominently. And so let's support these kinds of things. And so we have these kinds of strands, um, begin, or these kinds of ideas begin to develop. And so there's these several sort of strands of thought going around in the 1920s in this kind of era, which is in partly a era of hope and partly an era of, of great fear that, that uh, you know, bad things could happen again. Um, and of course, we have a variety of kind of upheaval at home on, in terms of people who are inspired by the Russian Revolution and all whole series of things going on at the time. Um, so there's some other kinds of, 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 of fears going on as well. But it's, I think this this, this kind of Themes of sort of good relations with the Americans, internationalism, isolationism, pro-British kind of feeling, autonomy. These are themes that will then play out in Canada over the next few years. And I should also say there's, of course, people who are very fearful of our relationship with the Americans. Uh, because from you know most Canadians, certainly Anglophone Canadians, there's not much difference between us and and, and the Americans on so many things. And the more they become our trading partners, uh, the more we tune in to American radio stations, the more we read American magazines, see American films. Of course, most Canadian actors of any note go off and make their careers in the United States. Um, you know, the the more American Canadians become how, how Canadian are they? And that's a debate. Of course, that Canadians have had for many, many, many years.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. We'll definitely talk more about, um, the U S, uh, um, Canada relationship. Uh, um, just kind of staying on this note about internationalism, one story in your book that I was really interested in was the discussion of the Six Nations of Grand River territory um, and their petitioning of the League of Nations um, to attain membership. Um, can you uh, uh, say something about this?
1: Well, sure. So the the, the creation of the League of Nations, the Haudenosaunee Iroquois, for American listeners. Um, uh, petition essentially the League of Nations to allow uh, representatives of, of, of their nation to sit at the League of Nations, um, arguing that of course they were an independent nation and that as proof, in fact, they had of course made a series of, of treaties dating back to the 1600s with the Dutch and the French and the and the British who'd recognized, you know, their, their, their sovereignty and, and independent rights and different things. And of course the Canadians well, of course, but the Canadians uh, were very worried by, by this and te- sort of teamed up with the British to ensure that the League of Nations wouldn't, wouldn't uh, m- meet with these representatives and, and allow them to, of course, sit at the League of Nations, because it would, of course, be a threat to then Canadian sovereignty. And this this will happen again uh, uh, in the in the in the 1960s and some other time. So, so at one time, of course, the Canadian government, or at this time for me, the Canadian government is very keen to use the League of Nations to, in effect, get international recognition of Canada's autonomy from Britain. It's at the same time, of course, that Canadian the Canadian government is very worried about uh, uh, indigenous people in Canada getting their sovereignty recognized by the League, same League of Nations. And so, it's this kind of a dual-track kind of approach to the the League of Nations that the Canadian government um, pursues, which I think is an interesting kind of aspect to this. Because, again, the traditional kind of view is is this focus on Canada's growing autonomy. But if we can complicate that a lot by looking at the role of Indigenous people in it, we get a slightly different sort of story.
0: Mm -hmm, Totally. Um, Yeah, I mean, what what that episode reveals is that, um, um, you know, like there are um, a number of Competing claims of sovereignty on, um, you know, the same, same land, uh, and um, Canada is engaged in this internationalism. Um, uh, yeah, it's becoming more autonomous, but it's also containing other sovereignty or claims to sovereignty um, uh, w- within its territory.
1: Yeah, and I, I might be jumping ahead a bit, but the same thing will happen in the 1960s, where the Canadian government hose a sort of a fine line between supporting calls of self determination and supporting its NATO allies, most of whom have empires. But generally, the Canadian perspective is to support the calls of self, self uh, determination movements. Generally, you know, at the same time, the Canadian government is is extremely worried about the efforts of Quebec by this point to have a more international role, and it's certainly mindful of um, indigenous peoples growing. Uh, demands for, for self-government and other sorts of things. And so that same dynamic will, again, play out sort of in the 1960s as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I want to talk about the um, uh, the, yeah, the growing autonomy of Canada. Um, so sort of this um, long decolonization process um, from Britain. Um, and so, yeah, so Canada had been a self-governing dominion since 1867, um, but uh, it took a, a surprisingly long time before Canada you know, got its um, you know, independence. And so at one point you write that, uh, um, you know, after uh, 1931, independence came in dribs and drabs, which I thought was a really evocative uh, um, description of uh, Canadian decolonization. Um, and so, so, and you also show how just like the formal attributes of sovereignty didn't arrive until very late. So for instance, like the Canadian flag, um, that didn't include the union jack um uh, didn't appear until 1965 oh canada wasn't adopted as a as a national anthem until 1980 and you know um it wasn't until 1982 that dominion day was renamed canada day um so can you just uh say something for our listeners about canada's slow decolonization well sure so like
1: um australia and new zealand uh you know, the other I like guess, dominions of South Africa, I guess too, but that's got, had a dead different sort of set of problems. I think, um, the Canadian, um, or Canadian Canadians remain pro British. I mean, even to today, there's a few pockets of, sort of pro British people who watch Coronation Street avidly, and, <laughs> um, care much too much, perhaps about Prince George and, and all those people in Buckingham Palace. Um, although Americans do that too, which I, <laughs> anyway, uh, um, and so it's really the sort of 1950s and 1960s where, where I would say the kind of tide turns really against many Canadians identifying as pro-British. Um, and that's part, I think, the, the changing immigration patterns. that's parting just Canada in some ways becoming more North American in terms of cultural habits and economic habits. and other That's partly, I think, just enough time had begun to pass you know where those kinds of attitudes were, were dissipating um and so there is this process that that australian and new zealand scholars have called de-dominionization mm. um which isn't quite de- decolonization because of course it's recognizing the fact that the dominions were were a different sort of category um but arguing you know there's this change in habits there's a change in in attitudes and there's a change in sort of legal statutes and other things to go along with kind of, of these changing cultural patterns and so we see that uh, in the creation in 1940 uh, oh gosh I'm going to out myself with being bad with dates but 1949 with the creation of the Supreme Court of Canada as the final court of appeal. Okay. So the Canadian Court have been created in the 1880s, but essentially if you still wanted to appeal many cases, you could do so in, in, in Britain. Uh, and so in 1949 that's changed. Uh, there's a Citizenship Act in the 1946. It comes into effect in 1947 which actually creates a category called Canadian citizen. Before that, all Canadians have been British subjects uh, in 1953. Again, I could be getting the date wrong on some the internet comment people. <laughs> let me know. Uh, but the first Canadian Canadian-born Canadian becomes our Governor General. So there's a variety of kinds of steps, and this accelerates then in the 1960s, um, uh, a whole series of ways that where Canada takes steps to to become more independent, uh, formally, right? and that uh, culminates then in 1982 with with the patriation of the Constitution, which until then had been an act of the essentially the British Parliament, and then the Canadian Constitution becomes its own, in effect, Canadian document in 1982, which not that, uh, not that long ago, really, so
0: um, this might be insider baseball to a lot of our listeners. Um, but uh, I, I really enjoyed the, um, uh, uh, the the comment about Coronation Street in your book, um, you know, because like growing up, the CBC always carried Coronation Street, um, you know, my grandma watched it all the time. Uh, it was on daily. Um, but, um, you know, you, you say that it's like it sh- this shouldn't be surprising given that, um, you know, like nearly half a million um, Brits moved to Canada uh, in the post-war, like the, the, the immediate decade after the Second World War. Um, and so that was kind of like a, oh, yeah, that would explain it moment.
1: Yeah, it's, it's this, um, you know, the British economy was in the tank for a decade or so after the Second World War. So there's this kind of last gasp of, of sort of a huge immigration push by by Brits after the Second World War. And there's still, of course, British immigration day, but it's it's nowhere near uh, it was in this period. And so this is the, you know, these are my grandparents' neighbors and people like that, and uh, you know, they played cricket. And I always thought that as a kid that was kind of weird, and they ate Marmite, which is inedible, <laughs> and uh, it's, anyway, so yeah, these people are still, we're still around.
0: Mm-hmm. Um and so yeah, so th- that's that's sort of Canada's yeah de de dominionization process. Mm. But I just so, I
1: should I mean say even up to this you know throughout and after the Second World War the links between Canada and Britain were were still strong. So I mean we yeah we, we give a you know two billion dollar loan and actually kind of write it off to the British at the end of the war. I mean that's a a huge amount of money for Canada to to, to have given and when Canadian soldiers are deployed to NATO, they're deployed as part of the British army on the Rhine. And when we deploy to the Korean war, we fight in a Commonwealth division. And so, you know, some of these links maintained, remained past the second world war and into this kind of period as well. Mm
0: -hmm. And so, yeah, so that's Canada's relationship to Britain. um, But uh, Canada also has a really interesting relationship to the U S and in fact, repeatedly in, in, in your book, Um, you have these Canadians who are um, really anxious over just being inundated by, um, you know, like American culture and information and uh, uh, business. And so, you know, like in the 1920s and 30s, you show how uh, American radio and uh, magazines dominated the Canadian media landscape. Um, And then again, in the 1950s, uh, Hollywood and television. um, And then also just, just in terms of just like, American ownership of um, Canadian business, um, which was quite high um, can you elaborate on this form of cultural imperialism and just how Canadians responded to it sure um, i mean the the
1: Canada's border is uh, obviously a figment of imagination um, but it's also of course it's real but this idea of the undefended border um, uh, is is a potent kind of symbol of the good relations between Canada and the United States, which I think have existed for, for quite a long time, but that, that doesn't mean that Canadians necessarily like their neighbors in many things. And of course, we'll, you and I will both know that the Canadian pastime is comparing ourselves generally in favorable, favorable ways to the States. <laughs> and yet at the same time, of course, Canadians are the largest consumers, I think of American culture. We're the largest trading partner of the United States. Uh, most Canadians live within a hundred kilometers was a hundred miles out of the Canada's border. Uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of Canadians travel every year for their vacations to the United States. All of this is representative of a kind of very close relationship and a whole series of kind of things, which we, I think, call transnational relations that have existed for a very long time between Canadians and Americans. And there's, you know, of course, Canadians who live part of the year as snowbirds in Florida, and there's uh, huge pockets of, of people who've migrated to in, in New England, for instance, lots of the uh, French Canadians who went down in the early 20th century for work. And, and in, well, I think a magazine article, I think I cited in, in the in the book, but certainly there was a magazine article, I think in the Canadian version of time in 1990 or something that noted that Los Angeles by population was the fifth or sixth largest Canadian city because there's so mm-hmm. many, at the time and, but there's so many Canadians who work in Hollywood and other things and so there's this incredible kind of interchange between Canadians and Americans but what I find fascinating is the extent to which Canadians in the past and even today um, um, are really frightened about the kind of our links with the Americans and I say this you know I suppose my personal bias and those sorts of things but I grew up watching American TV and listening to American music uh, reading American authors I did my PhD in American history. I read the you know, Atlantic and Slate and all kinds of different things. Uh, but I don't necessarily feel any less Canadian. Uh, I think they're doing those kinds of things. If anything, I think it makes me more Canadian. Uh, certainly today, in today's kind of, when you look at the United States today. But there's longstanding fear that the Canadians had that the more American things you consume or the more you trade with them different kinds of things, the more American you become. And obviously, you know, as American foreign relations, international historian, it's, it's American cultural imperialism is a, is a big field of study, and certainly, um, it's true there there is American cultural imperialism in all a whole series of ways. But at the same time, we can complicate that story. I think because so often the people who are receiving the, the, the recipients really of American cultural imperialism are sometimes left out of the picture. Right? There's a big you know colonization. Often focuses on the on the people s- selling coke, um, you know, but not so much as on how people necessarily receive, receive that. And so Canadians have been inundated for 150 years by by the United States, and I don't think they're any less Canadian necessarily than than they are today. At the same time, of course, we're no longer British; we we're much more North American in our cultural habits. Uh, car culture is. Is prevalent here you know began in the 1920s as it did in the united states and and so there are some things that make us different you know most of our pro professional sports are the same sports americans play um but maybe if we complicate the story it's not that these things are american maybe they're north american and that like canada we should put ourselves in kind of north america think of ourselves in more north american terms in in terms of things we do and so that might be part of the the push to my book too. And I think part of that is because many Canadian previous generations of Canadians viewed themselves as British thought there was a kind of a zero sum game between having a British kind of identity and an American kind of identity. And that the more American you became, the less British you might be. And that infected some of the politics and, and attitudes. But I you know, maybe it's time to just think of ourselves as being more North American than anything else.
0: I mean I think what your book reveals is uh just how like interesting of a case study Canada is for US cultural imperialism um because like we are uh in so many ways similar to uh, um Americans like we're probably more like the Americans than um any um any other place in the world um, and so it, it's, it it it's it provides this like really unique context where like we're so similar and so we're so anxious over I don't know like becoming more similar or something, um, uh, whereas like you know the the co, co- colonization story in, in Europe is a little bit different where um, you know um, like France has a, a different histo- history and tradition and culture and all that um, and so the, the the cultural imperialism plays out differently hmm.
1: and in, in some of those countries too I mean they have a much more you know, uh, uh, you know, have culture with long, you know, much longer roots than in Canada, right? And part of the Canadian story too is obviously it's a story of migrants coming to here and what defines you as being Canadian. Well, for many Canadians, that used to be a British kind of heritage. And so many recent immigrants, whether they were of British sort of ancestry or not, became very, very pro-British in their in their views. And, and it, was the, it was John Diefenbaker, who's our prime minister in the 50s and 60s, was German, but he's of German background. He was more pro, the most pro-British prime minister I think we've ever had um, to kind of make up make up for that. And certainly my Ukrainian Baba you know, loves the monarchy that more they think is healthy. Um, <laughs> but that was a way for her to fit in to a to a very anglo anglo anglophone Anglo-Saxon uh, sort of society when she arrived here. so um, and so I think the defining what is a Canadian is a, is, a, is this perennial problem in Canada, one of these perennial questions. And part of that is defining ourselves as being un-American. And that's a pastime that's as old as, as Canada, right? At the same time, of course, as we, we both know, there's not actually that much... It is an important question, this issue of definition, because there's probably not that much that separates many Canadians from Americans.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so in addition to looking at the uh, relationship between Canada and Britain, the relationship um, uh, um, between Canada and the U.S., um, your book also... Historicizes several concepts that have guide, guided Canadian foreign policy. And I think this is a, um, a, a really um, uh, excellent um, sort of facet of your book. And one that is really fascinating to me, and just how pers- persistent, like, or how it's persisted even to this day, is the idea of the middle power. Um, where did this concept come from, and why did Canadians latch on to it in the post war era?
1: I think it's a concept that has two sort of understandings. One is, is it's a definition that comes out of the Second World War when Canada um, wasn't a great power, certainly wasn't, uh, you know, to think ahead of the cold, or wasn't a superpower, but we were not, uh, you know, I don't want to pick on, on Guatemala, but we're, we weren't Guatemala necessarily. And so we were a, a different kind of uh, sort of category. Uh, you know, not a minor power. We were a middle power. It's actually the economists that in 1943 first uses this term to to apply to Canada. We we'd put uh, you know a million million men in uniform. Uh, we would become uh, you know an industrial powerhouse in terms of our industrial output. We of course ended the Great Depression and different sorts of things. We were by we ended the war, thankfully untouched by you know, physically by the by the damage. You know, Canadian cities weren't bombed or anything. Um, you know, in a position of relative, relatively, relative importance, Um, which again is shocking, I think, to Canadian attitudes. And so we had um, some influence then, and it's important not to say, not to to overemphasize how much, on the way in which the so-called liberal international order, which is another problematic maybe term perhaps, but was, was formed. And so Canadians were were helped to sort of create some of the institutions. But it's important to think that you know to note that Canadians were so cautious about doing this. It was kind of a new idea that some that Canada would have a role to play in international affairs. And so some of those still sort of isolationist attitudes were still present at the time. And we also perhaps didn't have as much influence as some of the diplomats would would note in their memoirs. But this idea that we had a role to play in the world um comes out of this too, and that's the second sort of understanding of this idea of middle power is is not only did we have relative influence, but we should use that influence in the world and so the other kind of way that people kind of conceptualize this idea of Canada as a middle power is that we get in the middle of problems in the international affairs. It's not only that we're you know have a relatively relative size. And, and you know, GDP to, to to do things in national affairs, but that we should play a role in in, in problems, and so that's really where the myth, um, perhaps in a pernicious kind of way, really really plays out. Because like Canada is a is a middle power, a member of the G the G seven. You know, we're a member of several alliances and, and different sorts of things. Uh, we have pretty high GDP. You know, we're we're not a great power, but we're but a middle power perhaps, but. But this idea that Canada has a role to play in the world, and a positive role to play, is also this kind of understanding of the middle power. And so it's this generation of kind of diplomats who arise in the 19, late 1940s, early 1950s, who really portray Canada in this in this way. And to their credit, you know, they, they do have a, a, a role to play in negotiating things and taking on burdens uh, through the UN for peacekeeping duties, let's say, or role of the International Control Commission that monitors the sort of implementation of the Geneva Accords in Indochina you know Canada does take on certain international responsibilities that would have been anathema to previous generations of Canadian foreign policymakers but the idea that Canada has always taken this kind of mediation mediatory very positive benign role in the world is something that I think we should we should ask some questions about and that's because um on the one hand, while well, we might have supported uh, self determination in, in some colonial contexts, we also were willing to sort of turn a blind eye to the fact that much of the equipment we were sending to our NATO allies wasn't being used for the defense of Europe, but was being sent to fight uh, in Algeria or Indochina or other kinds of places. Um, for example, or, or, you know, we, we, Canadian diplomats in the, in the 1960s, m- made some efforts to kind of through back channel kind of ways to see if there could be any room for negotiation between uh, the Americans and and the North Vietnamese. Um, At the same time, we sold billions of dollars worth of of military equipment to the Americans to use in in Vietnam. And so it's a a story about this kind of idea of middle power implies, I think, and it's still used today in, in the kind of, rhetoric that some of the people in the Canadian government and press are talking about Canada's efforts to become a member of the Security Council, that Canada has always played this kind of benign, helpful role in the world. And I think we can complicate that, that uh, story a bit.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so let's keep on talking about Canada's relationship with um, those those like anti-colonial movements um, or those uh, um, third world countries, um, because this was another sort of um, organizing theme of your book. And so, can you? So yeah, so you're. So far, you've explained how Canada was relating to the colonial powers, um, but can you say more about how it was relating to those anti-colonial movements or those third world countries? Sure. Um, part of the the view
1: that I think used to be dominant in, in Canadian foreign policy history, and it's really changed maybe over the last 15 years thanks to some, uh, some groundbreaking work um, by people like David Webster, Ryan Dewey, um, Kevin Spooner, was that Canada had, in these kind of international crises or international situations, tried to take this kind of medi- mediatory middle power role, uh, not just between, say, the communist powers and, and the West, uh but between colonial powers and, uh, and sort of anti-colonial movements um and yet when you kind of get when when people have gone in the archives we see Canada maybe taking a pretty often a dim view of anti-colonial sort of movements um or or the non-aligned movement um that that uh, m- diplomats writing their memoirs perhaps didn't uh, indicate mm-hmm. it in a correct, or not a correct, but inaccurate or, or fulsome kind of manner. Uh, and so, for instance, an uh, example is Canada's kind of relationship with India, which was often seen to be a productive uh, relationship by two former British um, colonies, sort of seeking, a, a mar- mapping out a way in which a Western country and an online country could sort of have productive uh, relations. And certainly there, there were some efforts to to work together, for instance, to bring an end to the, the Korean War. The King government was also very worried about the kind of things India um, um, was doing in terms of the non aligned movement, in terms of um, um, bashing uh, Canada's NATO allies, especially the the British and French. So, the Suez crisis, for instance, is this very storied moment in Canadian foreign policy history where our our foreign minister, Lester Pearson, brokers a, a UN resolution. Uh, to create a peacekeeping force uh, to essentially go into the Suez Canal zone uh, and bring an end to the fighting there. Because the reason why the French and British, uh, uh, the public reason why the British and French had intervened was to protect the Suez Canal zone uh, from, from the fighting by the Israelis and Egyptians. And so what the Canadians essentially said was, well, let's actually put UN peacekeepers to do that task and the British or French will be able to withdraw. And the reason the Canadians did that wasn't um, necessarily because of a happy happy belief in world peace or something. It was because the British and French had had made a cock-up of of this uh, situation. And there were people like the Indians uh, who were threatening to destroy the pull-out of the Commonwealth and put forward a series of resolutions condemning uh, the British and French in very, very, very strong terms. And so what is often seen to be this kind of moment where Lester Pearson was standing up for peace is actually sort of Lester Pearson trying to help our, our, our allies who got themselves this terrible pickle. And so we actually viewed you know, India in, in very negative terms and actually in those, during the Suez crisis. And we were very flummoxed that they were so upset with, with British and French uh, conduct in, in Suez that they were ignoring the Soviets uh, crushing the Hungarian revolution. And so, what what's often seen to be a happy relationship between Canada and India is is a bit more complicated than that. And similar kinds of things play out uh, with Indonesia, for instance, and and, and other countries in this, at the time was the Third World. And so, uh, a sort of a happier story about Canada, uh, this traditional view of kind of the middle power and this Canada's a sort of benign actor or helpful actor in the world, can be a bit more complicated uh, mm-hmm. by by getting into the archives and different kind sorts of things.
0: Mm -hmm. yeah i just want to alert our readers to another thing that they can find in the book we we won't really have time to talk about but a lot of canadians um also saw their own um you know de dominionization process decolonization process as um, a model um that could be um you know replicated elsewhere and i thought that was um uh like a yeah just like a fascinating thread in um the later sections of your book finishing up our conversation here um I began with a question about why international historians should care about Canada but now I kind of want to ask something like an opposite question which is um why is it important for Canadian history historians and indeed Canadians more generally to understand how Canada has been a part of the wider world um I think it's it's uh I don't know if I have to preach to
1: Canadians necessarily if this is the case I think Canadians Many Canadians, as as recent immigrants, uh, many more Canadians, as as only one or two generations in Canada, have an awareness of uh, the fact of our our ties abroad. I think many Canadians have an awareness that Canada is a country that uh, where a huge portion of the of the economy is reliant on trading, especially natural resources, but trade abroad. I think there's been general, you know, the last few years saw tremendous. Uh, support for Canada's uh, continued uh, membership of of NAFTA after Mr. Trump threatened to destroy it and what was so different from previous debates about free trade with the Americans in Canada is that very few Canadians of any political party uh, and certainly in the the wider kind of populace seem to be opposing the continuation of the Canada-US Free Trade Agreement whereas in in 1988 it had been a 50-50 split and so I think Canadians have an awareness um you know that canada is is in many ways a global country and that's a you know a bit of claptrap about canada being a global player but but, many canadians i think are aware that globalization has happened and that for good or ill canada is 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 it's going to be a terrible term networked into the into the the the, the world Mm. abroad whether through travel or migration or trade or other kinds of things and certainly, the rosy views that many Canadians have of their past, whether in, in foreign policy terms of peacekeeping and membership in NATO and and support for the UN, these are not controversial subjects necessarily, um, because many Canadians, I think, have a view that kind of has a role to play in, in these alliances. And uh, an interesting aspect of Mr. Trump and uh, his NATO bashing has just been to see that most Canadians, uh, you know. Have defended NATO, at least in some way, or at least not spoken out against NATO, you know, continued NATO membership, or asked, what's the point of being a part of this organization? Um, so I think that's an interesting aspect, is that Canadians in many ways are a global country, and again, that kind of sounds like you know, misty-eyed claptrap or something, but I think it's very true in, 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 in a whole lot of ways.
0: Great. Okay, so that concludes our oh, conversation. I should, I should, Go on, oh,
1: sorry? I was just going to say, and so the idea of, of telling Canadians that, that international history um, or that their, their understanding of you know, their place in the world uh, from a historical perspective is important, I think, is something that many Canadians might accept as, as just as already accept, mm-hmm. whether they realize it or not.
0: And so, yeah, that concludes our conversation about the book. Um, but um, we always finish off our podcasts um, with the question um, what you're working on right now? Uh, I've got a book on
1: Canadian Cuban relations from uh, 1959. Uh, onwards, um, looking at uh, to sort of diplomatic relations, sort of national security kinds of things, and also mm. um, you know, tourism as an aspect of Canadian international history, which and and um, a whole series of activists and other kinds of people who were inspired by the Cuban Revolution or went to Cuba and took you know, messages about the Cuban Revolution back to Canada. So it's a you know, looking at a, a kind of rich history of Canada Cuba relations beyond maybe just focusing on the embargo or something like that. Uh, so that's what I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm finishing uh, that. And I'm also writing uh, with the, two other other colleagues sort of history of Canadian American relations in the fifties, uh, which is weirdly, uh, an overlooked topic. I think because the relationship is generally productive and people like to focus on flashpoints and crises anyway.
0: Hmm. So, Wonderful. Well, I will be looking forward to both of those. Um, Aza, I really want to thank you again for coming onto the program.
1: Well, thank you uh, for having me, Dexter.
0: Absolutely. And we've been talking about Canada and the World since 1867, Aza McKercher's latest book, and you've been listening to New Books in History.